Mi, 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 mi. Welcome to the Sajcast. I'm Mark Austin. And I'm Stacy Roberts. And we, we are, are the Sons, Sons of Joy. Joy. You're listening to Sajcast number nine. Our ninth ever Sajcast. This week's Sajcast is sponsored by the 49th State. Seward's Folly. Alaska. In even. case you've been to <laughs> elementary school in America. <laughs> yes, a little refresher in case, in case you might have forgotten. Might have forgotten. The makers of salmon, halibut, glaciers, and crude oil. It's what pays their bills. That's right. And so Seward's Folly is a reference to William Seward? William H. maybe even. William H. Seward, yes. He was Secretary of State under President Lincoln and the less esteemed President Johnson. And in 1867, he thought it would be a great idea to take Alaska off the Russians' hands. Yes. And he got a great deal. Two cents an acre, everyone. Yes. Those of you who can do the math, bought <laughs> it for $7 million, which worked out to two cents an acre. And here's what happened. He took the plan to Congress and said, Congress, come on. Two cents an acre. And they said, no. What a deal. Yeah, because we don't like the president that you work for, so we're going to sit here and do nothing and not take something that is advantageous for the union and the nation and our long-term welfare and prosperity because we want to get all tangled up in politics. And so we almost didn't get Alaska that way. And for those of you who drive cars, well... That would have not worked out so well. Well, and at the time, Alaska wasn't as clearly a good buy as it seems to today. That's true. Because at the time, I mean, one, it's a territory that isn't connected to us, so it's kind of a, a bitch to defend if it came down to it. That's true. Um, and the the main output at the time was pelt. So beaver pelts and silver fox and a couple other things. And the Russians had pretty thoroughly beaten that down, so there there weren't a lot of pelts to be had. And that's so true. many people thought... Well, this was Seward's Folly. It's ridiculous. You bought a nice, uh, giant ice cube that's worth practically nothing. And that's why it's two cents an acre. Yes, but, but his argument was, in defense, we're paying practically nothing for it. <laughs> and so, Fair enough. why not proceed? And Congress still said nay. But in the end, he got to buy it. And we have it now. And we have it now. And many years later, it became a state. Yes. But not before finding gold and mm-hmm. oil. How about that? How about that? Yes. And so they have spent a very small amount of their oil and gold revenues on sponsoring this Sajcast. It was kind of them. Yes, we appreciate it. And so being the 49th state, it occurred to me, because um, I recently visited the great state of Alaska, and and being the 49th state, it, it struck me, a couple things struck me. Well, the first one was, well, we, we've got 50, right? So there was one more off in the Pacific somewhere we decided that we'd include. Perhaps another vacation spot. Another popular vacation. Much more popular, I think, <laughs> even than Alaska. But you you got to figure that at the time, like Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands were like, they had to be eyeing this. And you know, I, I get the feeling, not having lived through this, but most Americans were probably like, eh, it's a nice round number now. <laughs> yeah. 50s, 49 was a little weird, but 50 evens out the stars real nice. Well, and I don't want to be cynical. But you know that adding states to the Union has always been a big power play. Yes. Ever since we had our original ones. Now, 13 13 colonies got grandfathered in because they were there at the time. But every single one that got added after that, 
you know they're doing the math. Okay, how many senators? Mm-hmm. How many congressmen? Which way do they vote? Which way are they going to vote? And so the adding of territory to our great union, the fullest expression of manifest destiny, first had to run through the math of, well, gee, are they going to vote for my pork? Yep. Am I going to have to vote for their pork? What if they build a bridge that goes nowhere? Am I going to have to back them up on that? Will they name an airport after that guy? Maybe yes, they, they will. Yes, they will. <laughs> Well, the other thing that occurred to me with being number 49 and then later 50 is that you and I, at least, and, and probably most of the people listening to the Sajcast, this number is just fixed in our brains um, since the time we were children. But I remember when I was a kid learning the 50 states and, and there was a lot of confusion talk around it, you know, and I didn't, it didn't occur to me at the time and, and really just until I was thinking about it recently that this all happened in our parents' lifetime. I mean, there's lots of people in living memory well, didn't have 50 states. Yeah. And it just, it seems unthinkable to me that, that there was a time not that long ago where we weren't 50. Yeah. It was, oh, I remember, you know, the, there's a line from The Simpsons where Grandpa says he'll be dead in the cold, cold ground before he recognized Missouri. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's it's funny to think that our, our country, you know, is static now, but it, it really wasn't in no. not that long ago. Right. So anyway, um, we'll we'll probably recur back to our sponsor here and there. Uh, being that uh, I was recently there, and we can talk salmon, halibut, glaciers, and crude oil. And puffins and elk babies and whatever else it was Some that you ate. Some moose and bears and whatnot. I understand that Santa Claus is looking for one reindeer <laughs> that disappeared while you were up there. Well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves into the, uh, the food pornography. The food porn section, yes, <laughs> you're right. Okay, one thing at a time. So... On to current events. So where shall we start? We've got a couple of current events to talk about. Yes. Well, and since we just covered Alaska, maybe we'll put that last and talk about what we excel at, which is the weather. The weather. It is almost fall in the Midwest. It is the weekend in which you cover up your pool and you tell the people who take care of your lawn. And now, I don't want to cast dispersion on my lawn cutting abilities, but for those of you who know me, realize that all the men in my family have died at a young age doing something outside involving power tools, tractors. <laughs> so as a almost a genetic defense, I don't cut the grass. I have somebody else do it. And I called this guy up and I said, well, fall is clearly here because I've got the pool cover on. And what I'd like you to do is just level it. Take everything living out of the backyard. <laughs> I want to see a moonscape out there. I want, to, I want astronauts to come and plant flags out there. And so, yes, take it all out and it'll grow back in the spring. Won't it? He's like, yeah, you're a weird dude. But I think he's going to do it because I'll pay him. That's how it works. That's capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> That's capitalism. So this is how we know it's fall in the Midwest because there's a team of guys out in my backyard right now just hacking away at whatever's more than an inch or two above the ground. Well, I have to say, it's still it's still kind of warm this week here. It was in the high 80s today mm-hmm. and will be again tomorrow. So uh, it doesn't look to be fall about just yet, but uh, but we're on the cusp. I mean, well, and, we know it's coming. And let me be clear. Let me... Let me um, Adhere, as it were, to my principles. I'm not taking a cover off the damn pool until <laughs> spring. So it's you on. can tell me how hot it is all you want, but that pool is covered until at least May. The children's arguments are for naught. For naught. <laughs> yes. But, Dad. Not going to happen. Once the cover goes on, you are locked in. Foot is down. Yes. Well, I will say, in, in defense of fall, uh, it is already well and truly fall in Alaska. Or at least in parts of Alaska. 
So I was in Alaska with, with Suzanne, my girlfriend, for almost two weeks, so the last two weeks, which explains the absence of Sajcasting, which, if you were paying attention, we warned you, was going to happen. That's right. But, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy because we started our trip in the Kenai Peninsula, which is down where uh, Seward and Homer and um, Prince William Sound and that big old oil spill all happened down around there. I think we're going to have to put a map. That would be website. useful. Yes. yes. For, for some, because our, our younger listeners may not even remember uh, that to which I allude, which was the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Ah, yes. That's right. So this definitely calls for a map. Which was 89, I think. It was a ways back. It was a ways back. Remembering that. That's right. Uh, but anyway, down there, it was, it was lush and green and very much like, um, Seattle, uh, rainy and overcast and much more, uh, majestic. It's like Seattle on steroids. Everything's just bigger and grander and whatnot. But the drive from, uh, the peninsula back up into the interior, into Denali National Park where Mount McKinley is, which you can talk about Mr. McKinley if you want in his, his term as president, but, there, and I'll put up a couple pictures of this, they had fall all up in there. I mean, crazy mountain fall. Reds, oranges, yellows, like you wouldn't believe. And it was just, it was really strange to see that, uh, because it's not that far north. I mean, it's 200 miles. It's not that big of a drive that you'd expect that big of a change, but between the northernness of it and the elevation, it was just, boom, you're in fall. And it was quite the spectacle to see. So... Uh, enjoy that when you look on the webpage there and see all of our pretty pictures of the colors. Take that main knit. <laughs> well, excellent. Now we've got some sort of each end of the country sort of battle going on over who does fall better. Yeah, well, there you we go. We would say that whichever state's Bureau of Tourism wants to pay for an all-expenses-paid trip so that we can prove it, they can sponsor the next Sajcast. We are easily swayed. Do you hear that, Maine? <laughs> I'm talking to you. Any, anybody in New England will work, actually. We're, we're not that fussy. No, come on now. Let's pretend to be fussy. Oh, all right. All right, then. New Hampshire or better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a lot, I mean, lots and lots of things happened in Alaska. But uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, and I, I sort of shared with you earlier uh, in pre, pre-prod, which was yesterday, <laughs> was uh, in Fairbanks, Alaska, there is um, a site known as the Davidson Ditch. Oh, right which I thought you would find somewhat interesting and I thought I'd share uh, with, with the folks at home. So the Davidson Ditch is where most of the gold that came out of Fairbanks was extracted. And ditch is a bit of a, an understatement. They, uh, they're, they're fans of wordplay up in Alaska. Oh, yes. So in, in Denali National Park, outside the park entrance, there's a section of the road where, uh, and this has changed since my last trip to Alaska, which is maybe 12, 15 years ago, but uh, there's all sorts of um, souvenir shops and touristy knickknackies, and they call that glitter gulch. <laughs> so it isn't a gulch, and but it is sort of glittery. Well, and not to uh, stereotype anything about Alaska, but it could be that the very clever name you picked for something is the only entertainment you're going to have all winter. Oh yeah, that's so for sure. if you can get a chuckle out of glitter gulch, glitter gulch, then that will keep you going when it's dark all the time. Indeed. But we were talking about gold, and uh, and gold is still uh, a reasonably good concern up there. I mean, you may have seen this on your favorite channel, the History Channel, which, in not at all covering history, talks about guys who put on scuba suits and go under the Arctic ice to go get gold. 
Yes, they do have something like that. But I think the History Channel now, the only gold we ever see has been processed into jewelry <laughs> and is being sold in some kind of pawn shop. Indeed. But anyway, to, to the Davidson Ditch. So this um, happened the turn of the century. Um, this was when Alaska had its gold rush, which was um, after everybody else had 18, panned out. 1896, yeah. thereabouts. I mean, yeah, we had 49 in in you know California, and then there were a couple others between the, the Dakotas and... What, some down in Arizona and New Mexico. Well, some of those were silver, but you know, we were just after the precious metals in those days. And by the turn of the century, we were up in Nome and Fairbanks and all that. One of the things that they, the, the way panning works or, or gold mining works is remarkably unscientific. You walk around and apparently some people have better noses for it than others, but you look for shiny yellow rocks <laughs> and you pick them up and they seem very heavy and you put them in your pocket and go on with your day. And so they introduced panning, right? And so you just take this, right. like a big plate, um, and it's got a specific slope on it so that uh, when you swirl around, because gold's heavy, it drops to the bottom. And if you get a good technique going, you can flush out all the non-gold and basically pick out the good bits. And in the beginning, when gold is plentiful on the surface, this is a, a reasonably good approach. But after that, you know, the easy pickings, as you will, gone. Well, so, it's the same principle as to why we're digging for oil or drilling for oil. You know, miles below the permafrost, right. yes. and why we're why we're building derricks out in the ocean to get for oil because all the easy oils already been slurped up. But they realized, of course, that there was plenty more gold there. It was just not so easy to get to. And so, in the early days of their gold rush, they would uh, have basically a two-man operation or, or multi-man operation, but but still small in scale, where guys would go um, and work of all times in the winter because the permafrost was most frozen. And they could tunnel and collect the uh, the rocks that they needed. So they would they would grab up the gravels, make a giant pile, and then when spring came, when the permafrost may not be so safe, because if you were working in a ditch and the permafrost melted, it was bad news. You weren't going to come out. So that's when you would pan through the resulting stuff. So talk about planning, right? You've got a big pile of what you hope is pay dirt, and then you got to pan through it all. Uh, anyway, it didn't take long for enterprising men to create companies to go and deal with this. And so the way that they do this is with machinery, which seems like a very turn-of-the-century thing to do. Big, oh, yes. giant machinery. The particular dredge that we saw, this piece of machinery, was in uh, gold dredge number eight. Uh, anyway, I've got pictures of it. And this thing, the machine that they used is nearly as big as a city block. I mean, it's ridiculously scaled to where one side has an arm that extends into the ground and scoops up dirt, and the other end spits out the excess gravel. So there's big lead-in, big tail, and then this giant machine in the middle where there's a rotating pan that goes around and, and pulls all the gold out, right? Well, drops it into a bucket. Every two weeks, they shut the machine down, they collect all the gold, and they move on. But to feed this beast, oh, and the beast, uh, it should be said, was not built in Alaska. It was built right. where miners were, which was San Francisco. And so they built this thing that was nearly as big as a city block, giant steel buckets, you know, in giant chains that can eat through the earth, built it, tested it, unbuilt it, put it on a boat. Or several boats. Probably a few boats. Sent it up to um, Seward at the time, which was the main port. It was the New York of the North. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the original start of the Iditarod was in Seward. And then from there, they put it on the Northern or the Alaska Railroad and trucked it up as close to Fairbanks as they could get, and then from there, mules bring it in, and then they rebuild the whole contraption. Right. The point to be discerned from all this is that they did a lot of, a lot of stuff by hand. 
Well, yeah, and so the ditch didn't exist. And, and again, ditch is a bit of a, a clever name because this thing is as wide as a football field, well, shoot, several football fields, which was also dug by hand to feed the machine. So the machine could consume tremendous amounts of gravel, and the only way to get the gravel was to deal with that permafrost. So they had to divert rivers and basically create a dam and flow all that into their ditch so that they could keep the machine running. It, it went through 9,000 gallons of water a minute, right? And that's a, a tremendous amount when you think about what's, you know, what needs to be processed. Yeah, they, they would have to melt the permafrost. And so some of the water that came in was put into these little spikes that they would drive into the ground. As the permafrost would thaw up, then they would manually dig the ditch a little deeper and continue to feed the machine. And so, yeah, gold, apparently, very, very valuable. Yes, I was going to say, after all that work, gold must be pretty darn fun. Because apparently the Indians said that it was the yellow rocks that made the, the white man crazy. Yes. The shiny yellow rocks. And so and so it was. And that was actually an, an active ditch uh, up until the uh, the late 50s and early 60s, uh, back when we were on the gold standard. And the, the, the reason they put it out, uh, out of business is because being on the gold standard, the price of gold was fixed. And so the, so were their profits. And as costs went up, they could not continue to make a profit. And so they shut it down. Plenty of gold still there. Now, and nobody talks about this, but this is yet another thing that apparently is Richard Nixon's fault. Yeah, so it does It does kind of fit in with some of the political talk these days. There, People want to return to the gold standard. Ah, yes, they do. May not remember fully why, but, <laughs> but they did. So anyway, if you're ever in Fairbanks, you can go up to any, any, there's a, there's a number of uh, mines up there. There's El Dorado and a couple others, and, and I'll put the links up, but you can go and pan for gold and find gold. And I did, and it was good. And it was, I, I panned for gold and I got like 20 bucks worth of gold back. Is, when I, when I was trailer trashing my way through California as a child, we also panned for gold, except I did not get to keep it. I <laughs> give it to my parents and you, they took it. You were a worker. Yes, I was a, I was indeed a worker and, I gave all my day's labor to my parents, and they went and bought a 1974 Fiat, which we later Ooh. pushed off a cliff. That's about the best thing to do with those. Yes. So watch for my future blog postings on driving the car over the cliff. You should have you should have you should have keister hold some of the gold, which is apparently a common trait from miners is to keister hold it, and uh, they checked sometimes. The oh, uh, it's the, no the, mi- the mine staff would. No, no different from the diamond miners down in Africa. Oh yeah, yeah. They all Absolutely. had they all had similar problems. It's when you're when you're hauling tons of money out of the earth and you have to give it over to somebody else and they put it in their wheelbarrow and take it away from you, you start to think, wait a second, <laughs> hang on, hang on. Perhaps I could keep one of these shiny things just as a souvenir. No harm done. But no, they check. Well, and that's one of the nice things about having that that dredge is the the, the dredge consumed all the rock, spun it put all the gold into these pans that were locked down and no one could get to them until they shut down the machine every two weeks to clear it out. So, yeah, there was less temptation to steal, and that went straight onto the, you know, armored car and got taken down to Anchorage and then apparently mailed to Denver. (laughs) (laughs) Strangely enough. But Uh, no one had to touch it, and there was no chance of any sort of skimming at all, and so... That was back, but, but and this must have been the post office had a similar tactic now, which is you know any, if it fits it ships. And yes, so, that's right. This is a very heavy box, sir. Yes, 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 yes. Take it to Denver. Two cents and mail it. Yeah. No more of your of your objections. But I think the the story of Alaska is the story of ingenuity and making do with what you have and realizing you don't have very much and somehow making it work anyway. And so um, Alaska is impressive. It is. It's a, it is a lesson for all of us. And so, let's see, in, in other news, 
uh, I have right in front of me here the desktop ballista. And this was from Sajcast number four. And I know we don't like to point out which number it was, but this was a reference to Sajcast number four where well, let me just point out we talked Saj- about Rome. Uh, well, yes. Uh, but Sajcast number four makes no sense at all unless you've gone back and listened to one, two, and three. So... <laughs> Start at the beginning. Start at the beginning and listen to them all. And when you get to number four, there will be a reference to a desktop ballista, which has been ordered, shipped, probably for more than two cents, and it did fit in the box. And here it is. <coughs> yes, this was a, well, it was a Kickstarter project that, right. that we backed up and we got it and it's, it's currently unbuilt. It's, uh, it's just a couple of bags here. There's one bag and there's some more bags. Lots of parts here. And I know how mechanically inclined you are. So we'll let you deal with this. Yeah, no, that's how the men in my family die at young ages. So I think we'll let you build it. And what I will do is I will locate the barbarian tribes of Gaul that we will use that against. <laughs> we'll find some things to shoot it onto next week. That's right. So that'll be one of the things to keep us busy. Entertainment for everyone. All right, let's talk about project updates. Well, and... When we say project, we mean, you know, the act of performing work. And so since our most recent Sajcast, I've been doing all the work, and you've been doing all the gallivanting. Indeed. So the project updates this week are all mine. So what I have done is I have been blogging on my blog, trailertrashwithagirlsname.blogspot.com, about what I recollect about my childhood. And uh, my brother found the blogs and sent me a very nasty posting on Facebook <laughs> about... Uh, because in the blogs, I referred to him as Lane the Favorite. And he said... Oh, Horrible. How could you? <laughs> that's right. I, well, I give her... Everybody gets a title. Except for oh, me and, well, you. So, um, so anyway, I'm, you know, and I had to explain to him two things. One, these are not factual recountings of my actual childhood. And as an example, I pointed him to the one that was the story of my own birth. Right. And so if you believe that these things are somehow my accurate recollection, well... Hard to do from in utero. So well, there are there are some therapists who will charge you a great deal of money to regress you there, but indeed, but <laughs> you are not one of their patients. I am not going to do that. <laughs> so, so I've been writing these blogs and I've been having fun with it because I actually do remember things that happened not in utero, but you know, once I was out. And the the funniest one, which I think it's not the most recent one. The most recent one is how we nearly died at Hoover Dam, but the one before that was the story of how I got tonsillitis. And it was the late 80s, and it was a time in which my mother did not believe in medicine. Kind of like, uh, what is it, Jehovah's Witnesses do? Uh, there's a... Christian scientist. Christian scientist, yeah. yeah they, they don't, there's no treatment for anything. And so every year I would get tonsillitis, and I developed a procedure for dealing with it, because I couldn't go to the doctor, I couldn't take aspirin, I couldn't use chloroseptic. No such thing as penicillin, so you have to sit on the couch and either die or get better. This was my mother's treatment plan. Try eating moldy bread. <laughs> that might be a start. I think that my mother made sure there was no bread in the house <laughs> for the two weeks that I suffered with this. And so I invented, much like the Alaskan pioneers, I made do with what I had, and I invented the spit bowl. Because for those of you who have had tonsillitis past the stage at which normal people will go to the doctor and get a shot in the arse, by day three or four, you can't really swallow anything bigger than a hydrogen atom. And so, well... Think about how often you swallow in the course of a day. And I'll leave you with that thought. And I'll just tell you that that requires a spit bowl if you have you know, festering tonsillitis. And so I posted this blog, and um, 
I do have some people who read them. Thanks, thanks to all six of you. But this was the episode of the blog that people did not believe happened. Curiously enough. Yeah. They said, well, and they were almost pleading with me. They were almost saying, please tell me this didn't really happen because we felt so bad for you. <laughs> laying on the couch, spitting into a bowl, which, by the way, disgusting. And, you know, unable to even take aspirin or get chloroseptic. And so, you know, you should go and read the blog post for the full story. But bottom line is I had to go get my own chloroseptic. And when I went to college uh, a couple years later, I was ingrained that if you wake up in the morning, your throat hurts, you get out your robe, you get out your chloroseptic, and you sit on the sit on the couch with your spit bowl until the tonsillitis goes away. And so I was in the middle of that when you came home from class one day. Uh, because we, at that time, how many, we were like four of us living yeah. in an apartment. Well, yeah, three, three on purpose and one by accident. Yes, that's right. We had moochers on, living on the floor, but, but you were the only one who noticed that I hadn't <laughs> gone to class in three days and that I was spitting into a bowl. And you said, hold on, what's that about? And I explained it. I said, look, I got a system. This is how it works. You get the tonsillitis, you sit on the couch, you watch TV, you spit into the bowl. Got to remember to empty that thing. And, you know, then you get better and you move on with your life because that's how it works. And you said, get in the car or I'm going to pick you up, robe and all, and throw you in the trunk and drive you to campus to the free clinic yes. where they dispense penicillin shots. And I had a big car with a big trunk. It would have worked. Indeed. And so I agree to your terms. Um, reluctantly. Reluctantly. <laughs> but I, but I, uh, my choices at that moment seemed to be I could either ride up front like a person or I could be <laughs> stuffed in the trunk like some kind of hostage fated to die. And so I picked front seat, went to the clinic, and the doctor told me that it was the worst case of tonsillitis that she'd ever seen. And I said, what medical school did you go to? This is untreated tonsillitis. No one's ever, textbook. No textbook. one's ever seen it unless you've gone on a Doctors Without Borders trip to Africa. How would you ever have seen untreated tonsillitis in America? She said, bend over. I'm going to put this shot. <laughs> and that will fix everything. And it did. And yeah, I tried. Because much to your chagrin, you wanted them out. Oh, yeah. I wanted them out. And, and they don't take them out anymore. Now, when my brother, and I'm not saying he's the favorite, but he had tonsillitis for about four minutes before my mother had him to the, to the hospital to get his tonsils taken out. But I came down. I can't even swallow, let alone breathe. And she's like, you'll be fine. We just leave them in. But turns out... My mother is a medical pioneer because she <laughs> found out that you need your tonsils for something and you have to keep them in. And so the the clinic doctor at Florida State University would not take my tonsils out, you know, right there in the... In the come on. Come on. Do it. <laughs> Just spray them with the chloroseptic and they'll come right out. But the, the miracle was the shot. By, the, by that afternoon, I was cured, essentially. Yeah. And I was reluctant to then take the entire prescription of pills that she gave me. And once again, you had to haul out a threat in which I did not take all the pills. Bad things were going to happen to me. And since I had been threatened already with being stuffed unceremoniously in a trunk, <laughs> I took all the penicillin. And ever since then, I have gone straight for the medication every single time. It's good advice. But the point of all that was... People didn't believe that that actually happened. I had to summon you from it's, the wastes of Alaska true. to get on Twitter and actually say, yes, I witnessed the spitball with my own eyes. This actually happened. And it, and it, and it segued, I remember, on Twitter into, into an interesting story, which we'll have to share on, on another Sajcast, about Uzo the dog. Oh, yes, because that was right around the time when... when uh, our little dog met Uzo, the Great Dane. Yes. Now, when you say our dog, let's let's be fair. We do not have a dog. Our roommate's dog. 
Yes, our roommate. The one very, that was paying rent. To yeah, be fair. Well, when, why do you have roommates? Because they're fun to be around. No, <laughs> you have them so that they can pay the rent. And sometimes they bring their little dogs, and so that's usually fine. But if you're say pulling an all-nighter studying calculus, well, the dog becomes annoying and entertaining, and you might, I don't know, glue a pretzel to the floor, or several. Or several to see if the, what the dog would do. How does the dog react when confronted with a problem? I mean, it's like the pioneers in Alaska. Do you build a machine in San Francisco, make sure it works, <laughs> take it apart, truck it up to Alaska, put it back together, and then deploy it? Does the dog think like that? <laughs> no, the dog kept looking at us saying, there's something defective about these pretzels, and we expect you guys with thumbs to fix it for me. Uh, we did not like this dog. And at one point, the dog was outside, and, and the giant Great Dane Uzo came over, and we said, oh, look, the dogs are playing together. Oh, but this won't be a story for another time if you keep going. <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> but I was trying to remember if we if the dog even had a name, because it occurred to me that I didn't know the dog's name, and you didn't know the dog's name, and so I was thinking perhaps it didn't have a name. But I think its owner called it something. Did it? Yes. Well, we can't remember. Did we can't the, remember. We, had a, we, we took in a cat the year the year before... Yeah, the year before. Right. When we stayed at the Klondike. Yeah, but the cat, named. the cat found it too cold and wouldn't stay. But the uh, the cat also had no name, did it? Yeah, I don't really name things. Yeah, they're just, it's just cat and it's dog. It's cat and dog. Yes. Right, Uzo, yeah. Uzo was not ours, and so Uzo had a proper name. Right, right. But the rest of it, it's it's we describe things by function. I have a dog now that has a name. In fact, because my daughter's named this dog, it has six names. <laughs> like it's some sort of Eastern European royalty. But I call it dog. And it knows that that's its name, and it responds when I say, dog, go get my shoes. And it just stares at me. But it knows you're talking to it. Right. It's not going to get anything. Why does a dog need a name? There's a philosophical heavyweight for you to ponder between this Sajcast and the next one. T.S. Eliot would tell you that cats have many names, but dogs is another story. That's right. Yeah. So that was was your blog update. And um, one of the things that we were talking about in terms of project updates was... Uh, and we confessed this in previous Sajcasts that we were, we were behind and there were a couple of weeks that we didn't get anything done towards our book, Saving Emily. Yes. We, uh, we well, kinda... and, and if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that in certain Sajcasts, and I won't tell you which ones because you have to go back and listen to them all, we talk about, say, the Roman Empire or the pioneers of Alaska. People who got up every day with a clear set of goals in mind and worked really hard to get them accomplished and then finished them. And, of course, we don't do anything for nothing. And so is it possible that even subconsciously we are picking these examples to hold (laughs) up and say, look what these people did without computers, electricity, running water? Well, I would say that we do pay our bills. And our 9-to-5ers, which run much longer than 9-to-5 most days, you know, are not uh, trivial matters. (laughs) Yes, but the Emperor Hadrian would tell you that there's nothing noble or heroic about paying one's bills. Woody. (laughs) I think he was deeply in debt. And I think that was his defense. But I digress. Anyway, we decided that in order to um, put nose to grindstone, that we should find a way to hasten the work because we believe that Saving Emily will be an awesome book and you will all love it. And the only way that's going to happen is if we actually write it down. If we finish it. Right. And we've, we've done some work on it. And, we and we've found that the, the way that produces the best results is for us to work collaboratively, curiously enough, but literally in the same room at the same time, staring at the same screen, fighting over the keyboard kind of thing. Yes. And we'll remind you that as after that description, that we're in the technology business and the best thing we can come up with is a shared keyboard on the <laughs> table. But we have let, tried other things. Don't let that slow you down. Feel free to hire us for any of your technological needs. 
Um, yeah, so so it occurred to you. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking credit for this idea. That <laughs> <laughs> is a cop out, and here's why. The idea is we look at it the entire 24-hour spectrum of our day, and I, okay, you know what, my day, fine. <laughs> I look at the entire 24-hour spectrum of my day, and I realized when is the time where no one wants me for anything? And of course, you know, I have a, a pretty sizable collection. I have clients, I have children, I have pets who don't have names. And a girlfriend and a house to take care of. The roof is leaking right now. And where is the time frame of all that where no one wants me for anything? And the, the golden hours, as it were, turns out to be between, say, 5 and 8.30 a.m. Yes, Eastern Standard Time. That's right. That'll be really early in Alaska, but yes. still pretty early here. And so, in pre-production, I posited to you that perhaps that was the best time for us to get some uninterrupted work done. Yes, because, I mean, our previous schedule had been every other Saturday, which is when you uh, didn't have your kids. You have your kids every other weekend. And so every other Saturday was, it was working, but counting the number of every other Saturdays that were left dismissing the holidays and any other vacation time that might come up, it didn't look good. It did not look good. (laughs) And it made us regret some of the more fun um, aspects of the the writing Saturdays, which if you have listened to previous Sajcasts, uh, for example, chopping off a guy's leg. Well, you know, that's still research that needed to be done. Of course. I mean, you know, our one-legged friend may argue, but... But yeah. books are measured in pages, not in fragments of ham. And so, <laughs> we have to press on... Someone write that down. It's recorded on the thing. <laughs> Is this thing on? Hello. Okay. So anyway, I guess beginning next week then, um, we're we're going to be meeting early in the war room... Here in Studio Z. And we'll see how that works. Because we believe that one day there will be a book. And you'll want to read it. Oh, there will be a book. I mean, we've, we've written books before. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have. It, it is worth saying that, that we have managed to complete more than one book in the past. Mm-hmm. So we know how to get this done. It's just we were differently encumbered then. And now we're... Differently encumbered. Now we're also differently encumbered. But we have to adjust. Like the, like the noble Alaskans. And the Emperor Adrian. <laughs> Somewhere betwixt them is where we will find our book. So I think that is project updates for the week. Yes. On to reviews. This week, I am going to review a book called Sing. Uh, Like a song. Like a song, yes. S-I-N-G, written by Mary Paddock. And the reason that I'm reviewing this book is because it is absolutely great. I heard she paid you a ton of dough. Well, no. Not even a little. (laughs) What? Um, I have been spending some time on the Twitter because I've been working on promoting my blog and, you know, meeting other writers and and seeing what what they're doing. One of the early fans of my blog was Mary Paddock. As I usually do, I go back and and I try and look at, you know, when people friend me up on Facebook or Twitter and they're writers, I go and look at their writing and I I clicked on the Try a Sample on Amazon.com, which gave me six pages. You know, I mean, mm. it, it, gives you, it gives you the first few pages. And really, if you're a writer, you know that if you can't hook them in the first few pages, yeah. they're not going to stick around. This book hooked me by the second paragraph. And I read the whole thing. And I remember what I was supposed to be doing at that time. <laughs> but I stopped to read the whole book right then and there. And then I had to go back and read it again. 
And it's worth saying that when you say a book, this is actually a collection of it is, stories. It is a collection of short stories. I mean, in, in total, it adds up to book length, mm-hmm. um, maybe small book length. But uh, let me just say, without being crabby, I don't have a lot of free time. And I think we covered that in Project Updates um, when we compared ourselves to the Alaskan Pioneers and the Emperor Hadrian. Um, and so if it's not good, well, even if it is good, I don't really have time to read the whole thing. So... You're saying it has to be really good. I'm saying it has to be really good. And this was a book that stopped me dead in my tracks so that I could read the whole thing. To the point where I don't remember what else was going on. (laughs) And so the essence of good storytelling is when a book sucks you in and you come up for air hours later going... It's dark outside. The guy behind you at the red lights going, what is going on? <laughs> Send some pages back. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and so I'm just going to describe a little bit about this. The, the, the first story is about a mermaid. And the second story is about Buffalo on Mars. And as it turns out that when you go and try and talk about this book to other people, those aren't exactly the, the hook lines. Those are not, <laughs> most people don't listen to that and say, come again. <laughs> yeah. What? Did you say Buffalo on Mars? But that's the genius of the book because you're reading the story about Buffalo on Mars and it is told from the perspective of a, of a pioneer woman, oh, one of the first wave of settlers on Mars and their biggest problem literally Much like an Alaskan is like an Alaskan Ooh. and their biggest problem figuratively and literally are the ginormous herds of buffalo that have taken over Mars. The story is told from her perspective, and so you're you're riding along on this story, not because you have some insight into Mars or Buffalo, for that matter, but because you can sympathize with this character. Her problems become your problems. And when those Buffalo are coming, you're like, damn it, woman, get inside. The Buffalo are on their way. And so to 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 hammer on this point, that is good storytelling. And then along the way, throughout this entire book, there are lines that you just have to highlight. I didn't know that on a Kindle you could highlight certain sections of text <laughs> until I read this book because there are lines that you have to just you read them and then you have to read them again. And so here's here's one one line from the uh, story about Buffalo on Mars that simply says, "You can't have a prairie without buffalo, and you can't have buffalo without people to hunt and kill them." It's a very simple yet effective statement because it is just true. And the good news, it's true on Mars. And once you believe that, you're going to read this whole book. There are marfalos. <laughs> They're marvelous. You're not allowed to invent new species. Um, but, but here's where I got hooked on this book in the second paragraph. And I've highlighted this one too. Because this, again, is, this is just an element of how good Mary Paddock is as a writer. On the first page of the book, well, it's actually the second page on your Kindle. But the line basically says, um, grief as he knew it smelled like dead fish. And that's a line that you just, you read that and you go, I need to know more about what that means. I have to read the rest of this story so that that sentence is fully explained. Um, and on the page after that, the protagonist of the story is proposing to his girlfriend who, well, I got to tell you, she's probably a mermaid. But it says one minute he'd been a nervous lover, his glasses misted over, his thinning hair slick against his sweating head and his hands shaking. The next, he was simply a damp middle-aged man in an awkward position. That's a wedding proposal. And that's how, that's how Mary Paddock tells the story. And so there will be a link on the website where you can go and buy the book. I recommend that you get this thing and that it live in your Kindle because I have read it now seven times. And one, of course, was prep, you know, prepping for the, yes. the Sajcast. 
But every time I read this story, I find new things to marvel over. And that is a book that you can keep coming back to over and over again. So Sing by Mary Paddock, available on Amazon, and we'll put a link up on the website. Yes, I mean, get up the in thing. there and review some stuff. Go and read this book. And if you like it, you don't have to like it as much as I like it. I'm a bit over-enthusiastic, but I was, I was taken in early on by this book. But write a review. Help this author get her work out in the world because uh, there is a story in this book, and I won't tell you which one, but if you read it all the way in, you'll find it. It's a story that I think should be taught in literature classes as an element of good writing, good storytelling, a complex story underneath with enough, I don't want to say superficial things, but, you know, day-to-day life on top. Details. Details. That you, that you realize by the end of the story that you have read what I think is a masterpiece. And so, get the book. Sing. 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 Mary Paddock. So I guess that means it's time for food porn. Ah, yes. Cue the food porn theme. And this is food porn in an age of decline for me because I'm still on the low-carb diet. And so, good food, bad food, somebody bring me a loaf of bread and I'm all done. (laughs) But as it turns out, you, completely out of character, have been gallivanting around the world and eaten bizarre things. And so I think that foodborne can be all yours. And well, that's good because I have a few few weeks worth of good food porn to go into. So let me get out of your way. Oh yes, step aside. I'll try to keep the carbs to a minimum. Please, uh, which is actually, as it turns out, there there really aren't that many. But um, all of this, of course, happened in Alaska. Much like you, I was on the low carb diet, and I had been for. Uh, almost exactly two months before I went on vacation. So the, uh, the memory of carbs was just, uh, just a, a vacant, vaporous phantom in my mind. <laughs> it was like something that you heard that other people ate and enjoyed. Yes, I seem to recall that. <laughs> so having flown from Cincinnati over to Alaska, it was, you know, somewhere on the order of a seven hour flight, um, all told with, with, uh, everything. And I had actually told myself, um, and I think I told you and maybe some other people that before the trip, I was going to get off my diet a few days in advance um, and start uh, re-acclimating to carbohydrates uh, so that my traveling companion wouldn't be exposed to any, let me say, uh, gastrointestinal changes that might happen on the long flight. And we thought that Spitbull <laughs> was going to be the lowest ebb of Sajcast number nine. Oh, no, no, no. Not even a little. So I thought I thought that would be courteous of me to to acclimate myself at home uh, before I was confined in a tube with other humans, um, but uh, it turned out that I didn't actually. I was just kind of so I don't know um, not caring about food, sort of maybe where you are, <laughs> that I I kind of forgot to leave the diet the last few days. I just kept eating the same kind of low carby food that I had been, and just was like, oh, now it's time to go. So I actually had a reasonably low carb. Uh, breakfast before I got on the plane, so no one no one on the plane was harmed by my gastric disturbances, which was good news. What would the Department of Homeland Security say about oh, that? Oh, Lord. It brought a plane down. So, uh, anyway, landed in Anchorage, Alaska, and the, the magic of traveling from Cincinnati to Anchorage, Alaska, or taking an early morning flight out, is that you land and it's noon. <laughs> so you're like, this has been a long day, but it's only just noon. <laughs> and so... Um, First Didn't thing, the Alaskan pioneers invent the mid-afternoon nap for just that reason? They should have. That was a long walk. 
but uh, yeah, so having gotten to, to Anchorage, and this is downtown Anchorage. Now, Anchorage is a, a reasonably sized city. I mean, it sprawls a bit, but the downtown is, like many old towns, very small. Um, it's even smaller than downtown Cincinnati. So it's it's quite walkable, and uh, we had basically dropped off our stuff at the hotel and said, let's let's walk about it and see what what is this great land of Anchorage. And so we had gotten nary two blocks from the hotel when we found the first of what would turn out to be many hot dog stands. Apparently, Anchorage folk love the hot dog. Now, this wasn't really known to me. I mean, I, I remember having eaten hot dogs in Alaska, but not I don't remember all these, these uh, vendors downtown. And so this particular vendor that we stopped at, the first one, was um, a Mexican gentleman, and he was selling Sonora dogs. I don't know if you remember Sonora dogs from the Food Network or if you've seen them before. But this is basically a hot dog that is wrapped in bacon and grilled until the bacon is all charry and then put into a hot dog bun, at which point they'll add salsa and jalapenos and spicy mayo and all kinds of craziness. You had me at the bun. So oh, yeah. if anyone wants a guest host for food porn <laughs> next week, we'll take auditions. <laughs> um, but um, the other thing to, uh, to, to kind of know if you haven't been to Alaska is that Alaskans... Or, or well, I don't know if they personally feel this way, but there's a lot of reindeer available. And so, you, so you'll see reindeer steaks and reindeer hot dogs. Reindeer sausages are very, very common. And so this gentleman had reindeer Sonora dogs. So this is a reindeer hot dog wrapped in bacon with all the accompanying goodies on it. And so the first carb that I had essentially in two months was this Sonora dog wrapped in bacon with all of the accompanying chipotle mayo and all that good stuff with the bun. And I have to say was all right. It was very all right. So yeah, that was my first, and, and I've got a picture of that up on there. Um, it, there is a bite taken out of that. That's my fault for forgetting to take a picture first or not being able to control myself. I got to say that your dedication to Long enough. porn is uh, <laughs> uh, lagging, shall we say. Uh, yes, but uh, anyway, so that was uh, the first of many interesting in, interesting meals that, that happened um, another one that, that I, I posted on Facebook that uh, I think you probably saw was a pizza place that we had outside of Denali, which was very good. What, what struck me about this place, well, I mean, the pizza was, was really good. We had actually come from uh, cabins next door. We were staying in cabins, and they have, you know, every place has its own little uh, kitchen. And so in there, in there we had sat down for, for dinner. Just as an aside, the, a pet peeve of mine kind of creeped out here. So we entered the restaurant, um, Suzanne and I, so there's two of us, and there were, oh, I would say six or seven empty tables, two of which were two tops, and the rest were four tops. We were sat at a two top, and the couple behind us were sat at a two top. And leaving all the four tops free, which was, it, this is just a pet peeve of mine. I'm like, so the next two, the next couple that comes in gets a four top by default because they, they were last. No, or they have to wait. <laughs> Because it sounds to me like the training of whoever was doing the seating was, if two people come in, seat them at the two top. If yeah. more than two come in, don't use the four. Yeah, don't seat them anywhere. Yeah, <sighs> right. So anyway, we, we were sat uncomfortably in a little corner wondering why we were stuck with this table. And uh, and Suzanne uh, said she would like a burger and she would like that done medium. And the waitress, who was also sort of I, apparently the owner or operator or manager at the moment, said, no, we don't do that. They're well done. And at first I thought she was kidding, <laughs> but she wasn't. 
And so Suzanne said, well, I'm going to pass on that then. I think I'll have the fish tacos. I'd like the grilled halibut tacos. That sounds good. No. It's the end of the season, honey. We don't have grilled anymore. It's only deep fried. Wow. Because it's the end of the season. So, and, and to be fair, this is, I mean, cusp of the season is September, or early September. Some of the parks even start to shut down. But by mid-September, they, they close the place up. So we were there on the cusp of the season. But her snarky attitude and being stuck at a two-top, we said, well, we need just a minute to decide to leave, <laughs> which we did. So this is not the best place you ate this week. I'm not even going to give the name of it. That's um, probably best. Because we didn't eat there. So it, it couldn't have been the best place I ate. But we ended up going next door to Panorama Pizza. And uh, the striking thing about this was, well, it was a hippie place, and so it's laid back, hippies making good pizza, and they're just like, hey, what do you want? Sit there. We'll get you pizza. Like, sit wherever you want. Take as many seats as you like. They don't care. And to prove that they don't care, they have a dog <laughs> in the restaurant. <laughs> and, well, and, that proves it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll post the picture of the dog as well. Uh, needless to say, a fat, <laughs> fat dog. <laughs> well, because they don't care about their dog's health. We rationed the dog's food when we were pulling the all-nighter in Tallahassee. We did. We glued the pretzels to the floor so the dog could not overindulge. Yes. Well, and then to be fair, when the when the owners come around, they do try to shush the dog away from your table because he's being a pest. But he knows the weak links. You know, <laughs> he can spot them. Uh, there was it was funny. There was a Japanese couple that were sitting at a table next to us, and they you, you know they were speaking in Japanese, but you could tell they were like, "There's a dog in the restaurant. <laughs> Do I have to feed it?" And uh, and a couple of pieces of sausage ended up on his on his plate, thanks to the Japanese, and and a, and a few pieces thanks to us as well. So he got a little fatter while we were there, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a good pizza, and just the change in atmosphere from the the. <laughs> you can't have it anyway, but the way we're going to tell you to, here's a dog if you want, <laughs> have some pizza. And they're right next door to each other. Yeah, yeah. Food safety standards are not so big here. So, And and I have to say, there were a, a, a lot of dogs in Alaska in general. They're everywhere. You can't live without a dog. And I don't mean the little squeaky kind. I mean big, hearty dogs. Dogs that can pull you around if you break your leg. Well, that and if you have the little squeaky kind, you're just feeding the eagles. Uh, <laughs> they're not going to last. This Sajcast is not sponsored by any kind of dog lovers. <laughs> dogs, the only dog that did well in this Sajcast is the dog in the pizza place who stayed inside. It did. And was cute enough to get fit. It did at that. All the other dogs were eaten by eagles and, well, bad things happened to them in college. So that was, that was probably the most interesting uh, place that we ate. The the other two sort of memorable meals uh, both happened in Homer, Alaska, and I don't know if you know much about Homer, Alaska, but it's it's doesn't have a lot of claim to fame. But one of them is it's home to Jewel, the singer. Oh, that's right. Um, or was, and apparently this year's Mrs. America came from Homer, which they carried in all the papers down there. I didn't catch a, a gander at Mrs. America, but she was from Homer this year. Um, and Homer is uh, kind of famous for its spit. So it has a not a spit bowl, but an actual piece of land jutting out from the uh, the city into the waterway, which is known as a spit. And it's what's colorfully referred to as the uh, halibut capital of the world. So the fishing of halibut is very, very big there. And I set out to do some fishing there myself, but the, the Bering Sea was against us. And so uh, the weather reports in Alaska make Cincinnati's reports seem incredibly accurate and useful. Because every day they would predict, you know, rain and, you know, whatever. And it, it would be sunny and then horribly stormy and then sunny and then horribly stormy. And this was because something that looked a lot like a hurricane was in the Bering Sea and it come through Alaska. And here 
they're just like, well, uh, bad weather tomorrow, so we're not going to go out on the boat. And by bad weather, they meant, uh, you know, sustained winds of 50, 60 miles an hour gusting to 90. And I'm like, in the rest of the country, by the way, which happened the same time we were gone, that's a hurricane. Right. <laughs> you know? In fact, it was stronger than the hurricane. Right. Is the National Guard on the way? No, no, no. no, no. We're just not going to go out on the boat, probably. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't go out uh, fishing for the We might send the, the dog out on the boat. <laughs> And in the in the fishing of halibut is kind of a curious mathematical feat, which I was I was kind of engaging in, because um, halibut is running about twenty four bucks a pound up there, um, which is which is pricey. Um, but the the fish, which is a, a curious fish, I'll, I'll put up a link if you've never seen an actual halibut before. They're like a flounder; they live on the bottom, and so one side of them is white and it touches the the sandy bottom, and the other side is kind of colorful or not colorful, but you know spotted, mottled. And has two eyes on one side of their head because it faces up. Even more curious, when they're born, they're like regular fish. So over the course of their young adult lives, their their eye rolls around to the other side. It's a very odd thing. That is odd. The halibut that they had been pulling up that week were ranging from 20 to 30 pounds and up. And uh, they have a derby, a halibut derby every year. And I think the, the winner of the derby this year was right around 320 pounds. So they get to be large fish. They call them barn doors when they're that size. <laughs> That's a good name. So you can imagine if you pulled up a 300-pound halibut at 24 bucks a pound, uh, if you were a commercial fisherman, you, you had a pretty decent catch right then. Um, but uh, what occurred to me was uh, to go out on the boat was um, around 100 bucks or so for a half a day. And I didn't really want 300 pounds worth of halibut. In fact, I would have been kind of befuddled with what to do with it. Well, I point. would suggest that you take it to that restaurant that they wouldn't serve you grilled halibut <laughs> and grill it up and show her how a fish taco gets made. Well, there, there are restaurants on the spit that will that will bring your own fish and they'll cook it up for you. Oh, so great. it's pretty common. But, uh, but what most people do is they will take it to fish processors, which are also there, and they will package it into you know uh, serving-sized chunks, freeze, uh, freeze seal it, and FedEx it to you. And so you have to make sure someone's kind of home the next day, but they put it in the ice and they'll send it away. But the cost of moving halibut across the country overnight, if you caught a 300 pounder, I mean, this is really a dent in your vacation, <laughs> a big dent. So it was probably for the best. I mean, I would have been happy with 20 pounds, you know, of halibut, which is maybe, you know, 15 pounds of edible flesh, which I could have probably sent a bit home and eaten the rest. That would have been fine. But needless to say, we didn't go out on the boat. Um, and we just went to the local Safeway and got some local halibut, which had been caught a few days before, and cooked that up. And uh, it was absolutely uh, spectacular. So this was from the white underside of the fish because it still had the skin on it. Cut it up, uh, cooked it in our little cabin, and made fish tacos. And uh, I don't really remember what else we put on there, but there was, you know, the regular sort of salsas and such. But really, in the end, it was just about eating, uh, let's say it was probably pound and a half of halibut at one sitting, which is a fair amount, but it didn't seem like it. It's mild, flaky fish. Um, it's quite quite succulent, quite delicious, and I recommend if you have the chance to eat some up in Alaska while it's fresh, it's the way to go because that's that's where they go. And, and apparently they live in this particular area because um, many of the uh, other fish that they like to feed upon, like salmon and, and other fish, they all head up into Alaska through this waterway. And so this is kind of a, it's a place for them to kind of catch their enemies, you know, in the, in the narrow point, which Hadrian would be proud of. He would indeed. And, and gobble them right up and turn into 300 pound monsters themselves. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting place. Um, the other interesting notable thing about Homer is the presence of Russians there. And yeah, you know, you think, oh, I'm in, I'm in Homer, Alaska. 
Russians. Yeah, well, of course. Because there's the Aleutians, and then, well, there's Russia. It's right there. That's not how they got there. They came a different route. They came from South America. And after World War II, they found their way back to the closest place they could get to, which was Homer, Alaska. And so there's little Russian villages that, that dot along the edges of Homer, and you'll see them in town, much like we see Amish occasionally, dressed quite differently than everyone else, look like Russian dolls with their dresses and everything. It's quite an odd thing. I, I thought it would make a good story, a good sort of witness story. Remember yeah. Witness with Harrison Ford? Or a, a murder in the Russian village? It would be a good story someday. So, well, we'll put that on the list. It might be in future project updates. <laughs> And the, uh, the last thing to, to mention in food porn, which is something that's accessible to everyone, maybe. Um, even non-gallivanters? Even, non, well, possibly non-gallivanters were a breakfast consisting of eggs. There may have been a little reindeer sausage thrown in and some bread from the Safeway, but the eggs were the high point. The reason they were the high point is because this particular little cabin that we were staying in was run by a nice fellow. Uh, who was a former fisherman. He had lots of stories to tell us. We drank some cider by the fireplace, and he told us body jokes in the way of fishermen. <laughs> um, but he also had, um, you know, a, a bit of a little farm that he was working, and he had, ooh, I want to say 12 chickens or so. I've developed a particular fascination with chickens in the last year, and I've seen them in a couple farms and just have been thoroughly interested in them. And it turns out that these were all hens, so they were all girl chickens, and that means that nobody wakes you up, which is nice. I don't like the roosters waking me up. Right. But these were just girl hens, and so as soon as I saw them, I was like, hey, we need to go find the guy who runs the place and ask him if we can have some. Chickens? Because, well, eggs. Ah. So because just being clear. <laughs> because chickens produce, well, the hens produce eggs uh, pretty much every day, um, every 23 hours or something like that. Uh, every day you go out and collect the eggs from the chickens. And the the closest we can come here is to go to Tua's Farm. Tua's Farm, yes. And they, uh, they're they a local farm. Uh, they have chickens, and they're not uh, factory chickens. They're kind of free-rangey chickens that lay eggs. And you can get eggs that are pretty darn fresh. But these were eggs that were laid that day <laughs> or, the, or the previous evening because we, we had them for breakfast that morning. And they were just magnificent eggs. I mean, they were chickens that were... I guess we'd call them free range. They they did have a pen to keep predators from eating them, but it was a, a very large hen. They had a hen house. They went in there. They laid their eggs. There was this one hen that uh, they didn't seem to like, and they kicked her out, or she left of her own volition. She lived outside the cage. <laughs> and so she was always hanging around the cage, but apparently if she went in there, they beat her up. And so uh, she laid her egg in a flower box in front of our cabin. <laughs> So it's it's just interesting to think that, you know, this thing that we see in the store, you know, of course it comes from a real animal. And these are animals that are being fed just, you know, corn through the fence every day. And they're just living happy, healthy chicken lives. And their eggs are uh, not the kind that break easily. Because uh, recently I was in a hibachi restaurant and you know how the chefs like to put on the whole show with the sure. eggs. And he kind of threw the egg up and it just like hit his hand and collapsed. The shell was just that weak. Yeah. <laughs> These weren't that kind of eggs. These were good, strong eggs. You crack them open, and uh, when you open them, the album, the the white, just stood perfectly where it was. It didn't run off to the sides or anything. And a little dip and toast in there, and they were just the way God intended eggs to be at. If you can find chickens in your area, get some. Well, or, you know, seek out the chickens who have been shunned from the chicken community <laughs> because they'll lay their eggs right in your mailbox. Yeah, if you if you let them, yeah. And there are actually a lot of people who, who nowadays are, are, a lot of cities will let you have hens 
And curiously enough, you don't need a rooster to get eggs. It's a very biologically odd situation that hens just produce eggs. Yes, and since it's unfertilized a, eggs, well, over is, and over. Since it's a family podcast, we probably won't delve too much into <laughs> chicken sex. Well, no, but you don't you don't need it to get eggs. They just do it all by themselves, and they keep doing it. And uh, and if you have a, like a rooftop, you can have a couple chickens in a coop and have yourself eggs. And so, I'm all for all of that. And uh, fresh eggs are the way to go. If you can throw a reindeer sausage on top of it, well, all the better. So now our fans are going to start FedExing us Sajcast Studio Z chickens. <laughs> yes, send your hens care of Studio Z. <laughs> if you if you if you have the opportunity, if you ever get out into the country and you have the opportunity to get some fresh eggs from somebody, give it a try. It is it's remarkable how different they are from the other kind of eggs. And so we've gone from Alaska. Our sponsor, the 49th state, back to Alaska, stopping at many points in between. <laughs> With a spitbull. With a spitbull and some early morning working and singing the song of Mrs. Paddock. And the, her most excellent literature. And her most excellent literature. So so I guess that wraps up Sajcast number nine. Number nine. Sponsored by the 49th state, Seward's Folly, Alaska. Makers of? Halibut, glaciers, and crude oil. And maybe salmon too. 